Hey, Metric is a really smart podcast about design and user experience, and you are listening to it. This episode's about the impact of the user-centric zeitgeist on the election. <laughs> Amanda and I think it's pretty neat. So if you like this kind of thing, um, maybe think about checking out The Design of Everyday Things by the Nielsen Norman Group's very own Don Norman. It's kind of on the must-read list for very serious UXers. Off the rack, the audiobook is about... 30 bucks, but thanks to audible.com, you can download the design of everyday things for free. They're supporting the show by offering a free audiobook with a free 30 day trial. No strings, cancel whenever, but they're an Amazon company, so they do kind of cool things. Like if you have the audio and the ebook, it knows just where you left off and you can move from one to the other as it suits you. So if you like, it would really mean a lot to me and Amanda if you gave Audible a spin. Use audibletrial.com slash metric to uh, score that free book. Thanks. Hey, it's Michael. And uh, look who's here this week, back from a long hiatus, uh, Amanda. Amanda, coming back from Iceland. And- <laughs> I was in New Zealand. Oh my gosh, were you were you ever in Iceland? Did I just uh, was this like a year ago or something? I, I, I knew you were away. Okay, okay. So like, I remember images. I remember you. Po- I remember you posting like from Reykjavik, but I all. <laughs> Also, now that you correct me, remember you posting from New Zealand. How's the user experience in New Zealand? <laughs> I have forgotten everything at this point, aside from the fact that it was Chinese language week. So in public bathrooms at the airports, um, on the back of the stalls were little signs saying, here's a Chinese word, and here's how you pronounce it. And yay, now you know a new word. Wait, the entire country had Chinese Language Week? Yes. <laughs> there, there, there's a, um, a lot of the signs were bilingual for Chinese. That's all you remember from New Zealand? <laughs> for UX <laughs> off the top of my head. Oh, oh, and that, you know, it's been kind of a weird week, so I'm, my brain's kind of fried on this stuff. But, oh yes, every hotel that we stayed in, they gave us milk. Really? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure, and Thomas, my husband, wouldn't let me ask what was up with the milk thing. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Would, yeah, and they were just like, hey, have some milk. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> did you, I'm not um, sure. I have to ask, did you go look at the hobbit holes? I was on the South Island where there is zero hobbit holes. I have no, I have no geographical like conception of New Zealand. It is two big islands, and then there's a bunch of tiny ones, like Japan. <laughs> um, how do you think New Zealanders uh, felt about our election this week? Oh, they told <laughs> us. So I was on a bus to Milford Sound, which is one of the wonders of the world. Ooh, like that's what uh, the Jungle Book guy called it—the eighth wonder. And R- our... The Jungle Book guy, Rudyard, Cl- Rudyard Kipling? Yes. Okay. So, cool place. And our bus driver was like, what is going on with America and this Trump stuff? This, they're about as bad as Australia. <laughs> 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 we drove on. We're in the back of the bus like, 
You <laughs> dissed America and Australia in the same breath. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but all the natural spring water in, in New Zealand is actually from Australia. So they just import it over. Oh, oh. Yeah. So here's a here's the deal. So this week we're recording on uh, Friday, November 11th. Um, we are recovering from a very tense election that, I guess without um, alienating any listeners, went a direction that very few people predicted. So. <laughs> that is fair. I thought that it might be interesting if we could talk about the election and voting in terms of the user experience. And I have a, a little bit of context for this before we uh, we try not to trip over our tongues here. Um, so our, uh, and for those who have like our new listeners, um, Amanda is the OG. Like she and I started LibUX together. <laughs> She's just been on vacation for a while. So our approach to like talking about user experience, there's a lot of ways, right? But we sort of put forward that the UX is a metric, it's plottable, it's predictable, it's improvable, it's a measurement of the end user's uh, cumulative experience of a service or product, and we care about UX, I'm, I'm saying like we, like royal we, we care about, I guess royal we is not right, we care, but people people care about the UX because there's data that shows that actively investing in a good user experience has positive returns on the measurements that you care about, foot traffic, database usage, profit. So I was wondering <laughs> if we can apply this to civic participa uh, participation where, you know, we want people to vote. That's the number we care about, voter turnout. Can we then approach the challenge of improving this number by improving the user experience of voting? Um, and so I thought we'd chat about this uh, uh, super sensitive subject uh, in the cold, clinical, analytical way that we are good at. All right. Do you want to start with like a little bit of a background regarding like, um, what do you call it, like the echo chamber? Or do you want to go in with the article? So, so I think that's um, how do we look at th this in terms of the user experience. And, like, so there's this uh, model um, the, by Peter Morville, uh, this this honeycomb model that shows that there are just many different facets of what we think of as the user experience. So it's hard to say, like, oh, the UX of voting is good or bad because that's such a broad topic that that doesn't mean anything. But if you break it down into the components of what makes a valuable user experience, findable, uh, credible, desirable, accessible, um, is it useful, is it usable, does it have utility, right? And so the idea is that all ships rise with the tide, and like, let's say, in an, a super accessible and a super useful user experience may outweigh the negatives, um, like any kind of typos or credibility or aesthetic, right? And Regardless if something like looks bad, its usefulness, however that's measured, 
will nevertheless kind of like net a positive user experience. So you can have like really bad components of like here, here, and here, but there might be one one aspect that is just so good, it's nevertheless a good user experience. I would probably say Craigslist fits this to some degree. Yeah, exactly. It's very ugly, but it does its job fairly well. It's dangerous. It's like a back alley in a pirate village. <laughs> Okay. I've, been, I've been playing The Secret of Monkey Island. Yeah. Isn't that like a 90s game? Yes! Um, it's been remastered, and uh, it was remastered for in the last 10 years. Um, I think for like the Xbox 360, but mm-hmm. um, Xbox One has it as one of their gold games of the month, so you can download it for free. So I've been like playing The Secrets of Monkey Island, and it's like so funny. Like, I don't, I guess I don't. I forgot. I, I can't believe that some of these jokes were in there back when it was like a pixelated mess. But yeah, <laughs> right. so Craigslist. <laughs> Craigslist is super useful for selling stuff and finding stuff, regardless of the fact that there are people there who will murder you <laughs> and that it looks ugly, you know? But its usefulness outweighs, and Craigslist is really quite profitable and it's ubiquitous. And I mean, you don't think of Craigslist as a household name, but. You don't ever have to explain what it is. So yeah, so you can take this honeycomb, this these facets of the user experience, and then through these different lenses, <laughs> we can maybe look at the election. The first one I have in our um, Google document was such and such. Findable, meaning is it discoverable? Is it easy to glean information about? Is it a hidden gem, or is it like so obvious and in your face? I guess just in the writing of this list, I went on a Google Doc tangent. Findability probably aligns with the information you have about a campaign or a candidate. Does that make sense? I, I don't I don't know if I'm phrasing this right. I their have campaign, a great their policies. Yeah, please. So in the town I live in, I found out only the day before the election that there is going to be a four-question measurement on the ballot. And so I went home and I was like, all right, what is this? What am I voting on tomorrow? Pretty much no information on the internet about it whatsoever. There was like a little news article saying some people were like, ah, we're going to put this to the vote, but didn't explain what it was. And then at the election itself, they put a sign explaining what they were, but they were next to the line. But here in Connecticut, I've never waited more than 10 minutes to vote. So, you know, you just sell pass it. And then my spouse and I just spent 10 minutes trying to find, well, what was the outcome? Cannot find anything online. Nothing. What? Interesting. Yeah. And we've had this experience before with, like, trying to look up candidates and stuff for Connecticut. <laughs> just, like, no information. So between, like, the findability and the credibility of this voting experience, right, there's clearly, like, deliberate problems. Presuming that folks in your neck of the woods, know that your voting lines are really quite quick. The fact that they uh, put the descriptive information where it was, I mean, mean, it sounds a little conspiracy theorist, but it's possible that that was a deliberate anti-pattern, that they know that you're going to sail past it, (laughs) Um, then it makes sense that it's there. Yeah, so this sort of things like hurts my heart because... I am an extremely fair type person, even if I disagree with something like, you know, like if I'm in like in a professional capacity of any sort, like in any sort of job thing, I'd be like, have to be very clear on this. 
because I want to be good and fair and right on how to share this. So, yeah, it drives me bananas. But I wanted to ask you about this thing here. Um, you have an, something from a Ben Thompson and the voters decide. This is kind of interesting. And in the same way that we now kind of look in hindsight and we say, like, oh, look how Michael Moore predicted uh, the the direction of the election. In a way that Ben Thompson did, too. Um, he's a, a technology analyst, right? And so he wasn't making a political... Um, he wasn't parsing the polls and he wasn't making a political statement, but he was talking about the election in terms of technology. And in fact, he, he created this thing called aggregation theory. It's something I've brought up a lot and I think it's kind of fascinating, but do you happen to remember that? It's, pretty it's been complex. like a year and a half since we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, so the, the the TLDR version is that aggregation theory describes basically how user experience, the quality of a user experience, is the differentiator between businesses. Uber and Lyft are arguably the exact same thing, but Uber is dominating because they are more pleasurable to use, they are easier to use, they are, in some measurements, more rewarding to use. And so this creates word of mouth, and then more people use Uber, and they have a great experience, which creates more word of mouth. And so this creates a virtuous cycle where two internet companies or two technology companies, arguably, are um, comparatively, objectively the same on paper, but one can completely dominate that category. The idea is that many moons ago, uh, pre-internet, there are three aspects to success in business, or, or I guess monopoly in business, uh, dominating a category where you have production, distribution, and then the consumer. Pre-internet, it was important to uh, be the best at production and distribution. You had to produce the most and get it out more than your competitor, and that's how newspapers dominated one another in the information age, where um, especially companies that are predominantly internet-based, increasingly, though, that's all companies, right? Like all companies are becoming technology companies. Uh, libraries are technology companies, you know, these kind of things. So for any kind of good or service that's distributed through the internet, um, the internet makes distribution free. It takes distribution essentially out of the equation. So this leaves just the production and the consumer as kind of like the two facets of success. This means that if you guys produce the same, where you compete, where it hasn't ever been really the case before, the consumer mattered, but it didn't really matter as much as production and distribution. But now the experience, the consumer experience is the differentiator. If you and a competitor produce the exact same thing, the quality of that product or service and the quality of that relationship with the user is what's going to differentiate you because distribution doesn't matter. He applied this aggregation theory to um, <laughs> voting, um, and it's kind of interesting. Um, and I think, I'm just going to be real quick, I'm, I think I'm just going to quote this article, and I'll, I'll throw it in the show notes. Um, but it's uh, Ben Thompson um, in The Voters Decide, and this was written way back in March. He said, uh, blah, 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 uh, said reticence, though, creates a curious dynamic in politics in particular. There's no one dominant force when it comes to the dispersal of political information, and that includes the parties described in the previous section. 
which, you know, we didn't talk about. Um, quote, remember, in a Facebook world, information suppliers are modularized and commoditized as most people get their news from their feed. This has two implications. First, all news sources are competing on an equal footing. Those controlled or bought by a party are not inherently privileged. And the likelihood any particular second, the likelihood any particular message will break out is based not on who is propagating that message, but on how many users are receptive to hearing it. The power has shifted from the supply side to the demand side. So in aggregation theory, right, the production and the consumer. So remember, he says, party actors care more about their policy preferences than they do voter preferences. But in an aggregated world, and that's aggregated world in terms of uh, aggregation theory, it is voters or users who decide which issues get traction and which don't. And by extension, the most successful politicians in an aggregated world are not those who serve the party, but rather those who tell voters what they most want to hear. And so, he says... Uh, without any of the apparatus traditionally provided by parties, much of it obsoleted by the internet, and thanks to the ability to connect directly with voters because, because of aggregation, Donald Trump is marching on in direct defiance of the Republican Party's decision. And we all know how that turned out, right? He didn't dominate the vote, but he certainly dominated the polls, uh, who gave him, at best, what, 30 or 40 percent winning. Um, and this, this is something I kind of just, uh, tagged as a citation to the findability, the findability, the discoverability of campaign and policy information because it describes how traditional objective, potentially ideal methods for distributing this information. We all get it, right? We get it in the mail, email or whatever. Um, most of what probably we came in contact with were the articles being retweeted by our friends, shared on Facebook by our friends. Um, and it wasn't so much, it wasn't ever, it, it didn't always matter that, oh, it was the Washington Post that posted this link, or it was BuzzFeed that posted this link. It didn't matter. It could um, be somebody's hobby site. And a lot of times it was, right? Or they were posts on medium.com, which, you know, it's funny how Facebook shares that. It says, this came from Medium, but medium.com is like live journal or, you know, wordpress.com. It's just a bunch of different bloggers, right? And But Facebook and Twitter and the internet make traditional avenues for campaigns to reach us totally obsolete. Yeah. And, well, I'm going to shoe in here with... Um... Just a little side note here. I changed from being the UX librarian to being publicity manager. So I am now more focused on like buying Facebook ads as part of my job. Right. You're part of the problem, yes. <laughs> yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> awesome. And so we've bought um, several ads recently to promote different fundraisers and a couple author events. And, you know, I do targeting on these things. Like, well, for like the fundraiser ones, those are pretty general, and we mostly have women. Mm. I think it's it's something like 65% are women, and they are mostly middle-aged women. But when I was doing um, particular ads for a children's program, I chose only to target women 
for that. Because I was like, you know, our demographics are showing that men don't even follow this anyway, so it's a waste of our money to show it to them. The way the Facebook algorithm works is to support that line of thinking. On one hand, you are feeding information that you care about that's important to your organization to ensure that it reaches the widest potential of people. But by targeting, you know that it's information that that demographic is receptive to. This illustrates the the problem from the other end. If you were a campaigner, how else do you reach people who aren't receptive to your, the information that you're giving? What a challenge! If if you say you had, um, if you know that you had an issue that such and such demographic cared about, but the opposite demographic had no interest in, but you need that opposite demographic to get to like what do you do on facebook you buy and waste a ton of ads some of it will break through but for most people who don't have that budget that's that's not an option if you if you're relying on people on word of mouth it will never get to the ears who need to hear it yeah um well in that case i would say change the story around to be more um to fit that story's that audience's story better. Doesn't that sound like an anti-pattern? <laughs> then I mean, like, I mean, this, this is, isn't that precisely what other people like like get angry about when uh, politicians do that? And I mean, so, but you can you can kind of empathize with the plight. How like the internet has um, dramatically impacted this, right? Yeah. So I'm trying to think of like a, an example. So let's say that you want. As a candidate, you wanted to talk about um, the importance of the freedom of the internet, and so I'm going to generalize here that a bunch of younger people probably care about this a great deal, but their parents, on the other hand, may not care, and it might like they might be like, "Oh, but I heard on TV that we need to protect people from like porn or something." <laughs> but if you were to shift this around to say something like protecting your child's right to education. You might be able to get like through to them by shifting it. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to round this out because we're running out of time is you pointed me towards a really great article, but it's called the UX of voting is miserable by Monique March Whiny. I have no idea how to say that. Unfortunately, um, We'll link to it in our show notes, but she was talking about um, her voting experience very recently, and it was early voting, and she had five points. Long lines, there was a dial on the voting machine, which was difficult to understand and also too sensitive, and then, quote, election clerks didn't know know when the paper will run out, and there's (laughs) no one on site that can change it when it does, end quote. Number four, voting for uncontested candidates wastes time. She's like, I think she had 13 options. And she was like, why am I wasting my time on this? And five, for her particular voting machines, you had to confirm the ballot three times. And she writes, the election clerk came out in the hall reminding us several times that our ballot isn't cast until we see that American flag confirmation screen. (laughs) He told us that several people waited in this long line forgot to complete that third step and left. 
the election clerks then had to cancel the ballot and the votes that person made don't oh, count. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the part like really like twisted my stomach. I was like, oh, Jesus. Especially if they stood in line for two, two hours like she did. No, we both had paper ballots, right? Yes. I found the paper ballot was super efficient. All we had to do was essentially like slide the ballot into essentially like a mail slot. And we had basically that. a shredder type machine. <laughs> it wasn't a shredder, but it Slide was like Slide your ballot like in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but like the problems that like I had, there was lots of confusion what was going on. For instance, instead of like getting your thing based upon your last name, which is what I assume, it's by street. Mm. And unfortunately the street that I live on, um, it's similar to other street names, which are slightly different. So it's, it confused me plus the other per- person looking at my license. And then if it, there was just a lot of chaos. Like I said, I was in and out in 10 minutes, so I can't complain this much, but it was not uh, the best user experience of all time. There was literally no one pointing me to like where the actual scanner machine was. So I definitely was like turning around like, well, okay, well, where do I take this? And then there's no place to put the manila folder they give you to put it in. And then I was like, I'm not leaving without my sticker. So I had to like scrounge around for that. So that was kind of poorly ran. I was going to ask you, well, what would the ideal experience be? And in my head, I was kind of answering that for myself. I was like, oh, uh, you know, there's an iPad and there's buttons, really big buttons. Click here or click here, right? Or like multiple choice. But... It occurred to me, so there, there is a line of thinking that in certain circumstances, making something less usable, deliberately less usable, to increase the time, not on the page, but the, to increase the attention required to walk through it um, or like fill out a f- more complicated form. Where yeah. in most cases, like we were like, yeah, we want you to be able to blaze through this form because we're confirmed, concerned about conversion or email sign up. But I, I think I like that the the ballot was on paper because it feels more private than than potentially someone who could like leech data from a, a machine. But also, it took time to actually vote. I wonder if it would really benefit from making that easier. Uh, like this writer said, um, voting for un- uncontested candidates wastes time. And, you know, in like web design, we call this like, a, you know, making smart defaults. Um, mm-hmm. But in the same way that in Michigan, 90,000 voters voted, um, but they chose not to fill in a bubble in the presidential box, not voting is also a- an action or a choice that. I think is important that people have, right? So like, so if there's no uncontested candidate, maybe it's important that the uncontested candidate had fewer votes than a hundred percent. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's an, it's an important message. Well, yeah, we're doing a strategic feedback um, cause we're getting ready to do a new strategic plan. So we have a form so that individuals in the community can like tell us like, where do you see our town and, 15 years not the library the town Mm. um and i was going back and forth about whether the five questions need to be required or not because you might be like "Mm, i have zero opinion about this 
or I can't say anything nice, I'm going to skip it. But then someone uh, was like, no, each of these needs to be required. So well, maybe people just put like NA if they don't have anything to say. <laughs> Amanda, do you have any final parting thoughts on this, one of the most sensitive of topics? Um, the only last thing I think of is when you were describing like idea of like of a potential different thing would be um, those little iPads that like, God, I think it was in Iceland. I saw this where as you left the airport, you could say, yes, I am. <laughs> I am satisfied with my care, basically. <laughs> so you'd be like, yes, I am satisfied with voting a person. Yeah. You know what? Like no one ever asked me like, hey, how was the voting process? Um, that is the kind of data someone should uh, collect. Although, um, I'm sure someone has, and it's all just depressing, and nobody cares. <laughs> or yeah, those who have access to that data want to make it a little bit difficult. All right. So, any last things from you? Um, no. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>